Hello, I'm Amanda Jezik, IDSA's Senior Vice President for Public Policy and Government Relations. Welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series that aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by talking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing vaccinating and treating underserved communities with infectious diseases physicians Dr. Valeria Contos and Dr. Paulina Ribolledo of Emory University School of Medicine. Thank you both for joining us today. Dr. Contos, can you please share some of the health inequities regarding utilization of COVID-19 vaccines and treatments that are occurring in communities of color and other vulnerable and underserved communities? COVID has just revealed the social and structural inequities that have disproportionately impacted Black and Latinx communities. The fact that Latino and Black populations were initially in 2020 the ones that received the brunt of the infection speaks volumes of how much these groups are employed in the restaurant and service industry, in the construction services, how they rely on public transportation, and how often they don't have employer-related protections to allow them to either get vaccinated, get tested when they feel bad, and then get, get treated when they need to. Back in 2020, both Paulina and I were working at Grady, and we quickly realized that most all of the patients we saw at Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta with severe COVID were either Black or Latino. We also realized that our healthcare system was not really built to address the needs specifically of Latino populations in terms of language, in terms of cultural competence in terms of research, which is what we decided to tackle on or at least try to collaborate on from that moment until now. Luckily, two and a half years have gone by. Things overall have improved in terms of vaccine, uh, at least access, And there are many more treatment available against COVID-19 than two and a half years ago. That said, the inequities in terms of how many Black and Latino people have completed all of their vaccination courses and now with the new boosters, although not as striking as as two and a half years ago, it continues to exist. Dr. Rebolledo, what are some of the strategies that you think clinicians can take to increase vaccine uptake, particularly in underserved communities? We can break that down into two main spaces or domains. So one of them being in the public health arena and then the other one with regards to to, uh, our role as clinicians. And so for the public health piece, I think it's really important to understand what communities may need and really meet them where they're at. So for example, really having accessible sites for either testing, for vaccination, or for the delivery of treatments, and really relying on community health organizations who know what spaces the community are familiar with so that we can really do all of those deliveries of testing and uh, therapeutics and vaccines at those sites. So for example, churches or schools, markets, areas that really the community tells us that they feel most comfortable at. And then also trying to really be intentional about 
the type of messaging that we give to vulnerable communities. So for example, making it clear that public departments are safe spaces where they can come to really get treatment, where they're not going to be required to show any sort of immigration documents so they understand. So the information that they share is protected and that it's really collected for being able to contact them, to give them results about tests or to uh, schedules future vaccines or treatments and not for any other sort of like ulterior motive or to share with any other authorities. And then the important thing also is to, to be flexible in our scheduling, to have staff on site that speaks in the case of non-English uh, speaking communities that speaks the language and have that clear messaging that these are safe spaces, that really the intention is to provide services to the community so that we create the, a sense of, of trust and people's ability to return to those areas. As clinicians, I think it's really important here we continue to play a very important role in those conversations that we have with our patients. And so being very clear and concise in the messaging that we provide about our recommendations against COVID mitigation strategies, vaccines, as well as uh, treatments. We'll talk about that more, but that's where having people who both speak the language and who also look like the community at our sites is really key to be able to have that cultural identification and that just sense of like something relatable and is close to home. And so we can really play a role in, in also being intentional about having staff and clinicians and other workforce member healthcare workers look like the community and be able to really make them feel at home. Hello, my name is Dr. Mati Flechwayo Davis. I'm the associate editor for the COVID Health Equity Resources section of the COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network. The COVID Health Equity Resources section offers a collection of educational and training materials, research articles, and resources that are curated to help medical professionals and institutions provide equitable COVID-19 care. Check us out at idsociety.org forward slash COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network forward slash COVID Health Equity Resources. So Dr. Contos, I'd like to explore that point a little bit more with you as we think about making sure that we have a diverse healthcare workforce, and particularly as we think about the leadership and the staff of our healthcare facilities and our clinics. Can you talk a little bit more about why having that diverse workforce is so important and why we really need to prioritize hiring people and promoting people who are from communities of color or from other underserved communities? That's a great question, Amanda. And I can give two very close to my heart examples. And one of them is in the clinical aspect and the other one is on research. Both Paulina and I worked at the Pond Center from the Grady Health System is one of the largest clinics that provides care for people living with HIV. And Paulina and I are two of the few clinical providers that are not only fully bilingual in Spanish and English, but also Latinas born and raised in our respective countries. And I think that that creates a trust and a bond with our patients that is really not only related to that we can communicate because we have the same language. There is this understanding that doesn't need to be spoken about related to our cultural preferences, related to what worries the communities bring to their appointments, the many issues that they have with transportation, with immigration policies, the importance of family. Those are the things that facilitate the conversations 
related to why it's important to get a COVID-19 vaccine. And not only that, to any conversation related to flu shots, to HIV treatment, et cetera. Patients feel that we have their back and that we are advocates and that we will make sure that we recommend to them things that we believe will be helpful for them. The same applies for research and not only in terms of investigators, but also the staff, the research nurses, when they are communicating with patients of color, either Black or or Latino, in the Black and African-American community in particular, there is this very well-earned distrust towards healthcare and research after years and years of either neglect or abuse. To overcome that fear that someone is out to get them requires people from their own community to be working in these sites so they know that they have people who will serve as advocates and who have their best interest in mind. Could you both tell us about your work with the Latino Community Fund to bolster community awareness on COVID-19 boosters and antivirals? This collaboration really started very early on in the pandemic, and I think there was a lot of misinformation as there continues to be regarding COVID, all aspects of COVID. The Latino Community Fund reached out to us, and we first started doing a lot of social media health promotion and education. And so this would rely on weekly. And then they started to be more spaced out presence on social media of both Valeria and myself and other Latino physicians, where we would talk about different aspects of COVID from the, in the beginning, it was just as simple as like, what is COVID? Like, yeah, how could you do cleaning surfaces and other initial information? And then it went and kept on evolving throughout the pandemic as to include testing, to include therapeutics, and then to include vaccination and other ongoing mitigation strategies. So we really created this presence where they had access to the community. And it also focused on different groups. So not only, you know, accessing the, the population that normally follows the Latino Community Fund, but also they put us in touch with faith service-based organizations or with other organizations that work with youth groups or other community members. So that really the message would try to be dispersed throughout the communities. And then the other important piece was our presence on site and establishing collaborations with Emory and Grady. And so we did that in different capacities. Initially, it was to help set up testing sites uh, and provide support for those. And then it became also with us being present and organizing vaccination sites where we again had Spanish-speaking staff. We were there to answer questions from the community about anything that they would have for vaccines. And then again, it continued to to evolve to to other aspects. So it's really one-on-one connection for the community to feel like we were there with them. We were there almost like as their physicians and answering questions. And obviously like leveraging the strong bond and the strong trust that the Latino community has formed with the community. Also, I think our partnership has continued and expanded beyond COVID, it's really rewarding and a good feeling that the Latino community staff really trust our opinion. So for example, just today, actually, one of the Latino community staff members texted me because we text, like that's how close we are now. We like text each other. She was preparing a little video about the importance of the new bivalent booster for COVID She had done all of her research, gone through the CDC webpage. She did everything, but she wanted me to go over her thought process and to go over the video 
to make sure that she's telling the correct thing and that she's providing the accurate information to the community. For us, at least, it's been an ideal way to have access to the community and for the community to have access to the medical field, which sometimes is so separated and in a mutually trusted relationship between the Latino Community Fund and then us. It is incredible to hear about the work the two of you are doing and really sounds like this can be a model, hopefully for a lot of other communities and, and other listeners. As Dr. Contos noted earlier, many of the health inequities that we've seen during the COVID pandemic are actually rooted in very long-standing structural inequities that really, I think, got revealed, got a spotlight shined on them during this pandemic. So as we think about how to improve those structures, Dr. Rebolledo, are there potential federal policies that you think would help boost COVID-19 vaccine utilization and treatment utilization, particularly in our underserved communities? First and foremost, I think there needs to be an emphasis on a federal level to expand affordable coverage that increases access to all communities, particularly vulnerable communities. And these really should be aligned These initiatives should be aligned to expand the clinical and the public health workforce. And this includes not only, you know, when we have these crises coming in, but we really need to start to rebuild the public health infrastructure and invest in a lot of these community-based clinics that provide a lot of like free services to vulnerable communities and utilize maybe the model that other countries have relied on, on the role of community-based workers or patient navigators so that they can really serve as connectors between the workforce, the healthcare system and, and, and the community, because we all know how challenging it is for individuals to really be able to navigate the system. So really finding people with the community that can serve as allies to help us connect them. A lot of the community-based organizations, the work that they do, a lot of it is not necessarily compensated both financially and both incentivized from the value of what they do. And so there really needs to be investment from the federal government and from initiatives that are put forward to try to elevate our healthcare system that recognizes the value of these community-based organizations because they are the ones who are on the ground, who know the community the best. And we really should rely on some of the messaging that they give us and telling us you know, where to go meet the community, but really invest in them financially, as well as in providing sort of like recognizing the, the value of the work that they do. And then finally, because we are talking about disparities and health inequities, I really think it's important that the on a federal level, there's an investment in restoring the presence on a global level. And that will also help ensure that there's an an equitable access to treatments, to vaccines, and responses to future pandemic, and will help ensure that this work expands beyond our vulnerable communities and creates really a sense of equity and starts to rebuild that, that piece that is very important. One more thing about that last question, from a broader federal level policies, changing the message and changing the perception that the communities of color have of the government is very important so that they feel that the government is there to help them instead of there against them or to get them. And that includes for the Latino communities, moving away from aggressive migratory policies 
because that only fuels this constant fear of being deported if they ever try to access health services. And then, like Paulina said, tailoring the communication strategies based on what has worked from local community-based organizations. So to go and listen and learn from these local CBOs and then with their partnership, scale it up at a national level. Just to echo what Valeria said, emphasizing the importance of our CBOs, and then also of our continuing to find ways to expand the workforce, the diversity in the workforce. And so that's also something that should be emphasized from at a high school level, the investment in trying to bring members of the different communities, the, the public and clinical workforce, so that again, they, that trust that we have described as essential will continue to, to be established. So a lot of policies and a lot of current practices that can be expanded, but really make a commitment to try to address the disparities that we all recognize exist and will continue to increase if we don't necessarily take the appropriate action right now. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Canto and Rebolledo for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, please visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on COVID-19. I'm Amanda Jezik.